0: Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that equips you with the latest insights and strategies to propel your career in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and excited to have you join me for another enlightening leadership conversation. Now, if you're new to the podcast, let me introduce myself. My path includes 20 years of nonprofit leadership, and now I'm a coach and consultant, a keynote speaker, author of the book, also titled Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, and the creator of a virtual mastermind program designed to foster the growth of nonprofit leaders just like you all across the country. Now, whether you are a current or an aspiring nonprofit leader, my goal in every one of these episodes is to give you content you can use to succeed on your path to the charitable sector. Now, speaking of content that I think is going to help you, especially if you're a nonprofit leader grappling with limited resources that require your very careful management to assure you can maximize your organization's impact, then this is the episode for you. I had the privilege of speaking with Michael Schneider, who founded a unique and fascinating organization called Pilots to the Rescue. That's a small nonprofit that's achieved remarkable national success in its mission to transport animals at risk so they can get the help and the home they deserve. Now, Michael shares really valuable insight as to how you can be efficient when leading a small team and how strategic outsourcing can allow you as a leader to be more directly involved in the mission of your nonprofit. He provides practical advice on leveraging social media in creative and productive ways. And we also delved into the world of effective fundraising for small organizations, including strategies for identifying, stewarding, and even creating legacy-giving opportunities among your donors when you don't have a lot of resources to build that kind of program. Well, don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. Lots of resources that Michael and I discuss. It's episode number 232. And Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Michael Snyder. Michael, thank you for joining me on The Path. Uh, my
1: pleasure. Thanks for having me, Penn.
0: Uh, Mike, I'm excited about this conversation. You have a wonderful organization in Pilots to the Rescue And like many of our listeners, you've taken an idea, a need, and you've really created a mission impact that I know that um, our listeners will benefit from. Of course, you've also learned lessons. You and I had conversations prior to recording this episode and, you know, the, the challenges as well as opportunities. Maybe let's start with that. When you started Pilots to the Rescue, were there any surprises or particular challenges that hit you right off the bat?
1: Absolutely, Pat. And there were so many challenges that hit me right off the bat uh, when I was starting Pilots to Rescue. Um, One of the biggest was the amount of money that I needed to raise in such a short period of time just to get the idea off the ground. Um, But in doing that fundraising and sharing why I wanted to start Pilots to Rescue, I was also surprised by how many people, uh, you know, admired the idea, admired my motivation, how much gratitude came with the donations and all the accolades uh, that I received through the process, I mean, this really kept me going. And it was it was a little foreign to me, being a serial entrepreneur and starting businesses. When you go out there and you sell something, sometimes you feel like you're, you know, you're you're begging a little bit, <laughs> right? And then, right. And then when you actually have the sale, the 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 type of fulfillment you get from it is 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 very short lived, and right. you you never really feel satiated. And the, the big difference with raising money for the charity and a surprise to me is how I had it left a lasting impression on me. And, uh, you know, it was a, a great cycle to go through. And it was so much motivation and inspiration to keep me going and, and reach my goal. Um, and I raised over $10,000 within 48 hours.
0: My goodness. Um, yeah. Oh. So
1: that, that was great.
0: Yeah, wonderful start. And we're going to unpack that. In fact, I want to unpack multiple things you just said um this feeling and i think many of our listeners can relate you know there's a mission impact that's beyond the transactional sometimes of maybe for-profit business work but before we unpack that talk about what is pilots to the rescue and when did you start it
1: absolutely uh i started pilots to rescue back in 2015 uh, to combine my love of aviation and rescuing animals um and uh, the, the main motivation was after, if, if anybody knows a pilot uh, and you ask him or her what they do after they get their pilot's license, most of the time they're taking people on uh, it's sightseeing tours or something they call a $100 hamburger. Today, it's more like $200 hamburger. <laughs> uh, but uh, after doing that a bunch of times, uh, I was looking for another other reasons to uh, utilize this pilot certificate that I worked so hard, hard to get um, to achieve. And I heard about people rescuing animals and transporting people with uh, debilitating diseases to um, get medical treatment. And that, that sounded interesting. So um, I did a rescue of ditch puppies that came from North Carolina. And from there being the serial entrepreneur that I, that I am, I felt that I could build a better mousetrap. And I, I started Pilots to Rescue. Um, and then the animal portion comes from growing up with rescue animals. I even had a pet sitting business. And to my parents' dismay, I was always the kid in the neighborhood, you know, nursing back the injured bird, <laughs> uh, or w- whatever. I always had, you know, every animal you could have as a pet. I've I've had it: hermit crabs, guinea pigs, uh, mice. Um, wow. And my neighbor, my neighbor had a fenced-in uh, dog pen uh, outdoors, and they didn't have a dog, so. I asked them if I could, you know, do some pet sitting and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of times I would just go to people's homes and, and walk them, others were more long-term. So uh, if it was a nice day, of course I kept the animal outside and if it was uh, inclement weather, I'd keep them in the basement. Um, also, my parents were not crazy about that, but they were supportive because, <laughs> uh, you know, it was making money as, as a teenager and staying out of trouble. Um, and then, you know, going to your local shelter or your pounds um and adopting an animal whether it be a dog or cat that's what i knew growing up i didn't know you could buy an animal um certainly you couldn't purchase an animal over the internet there's you know puppy mills were not a thing back then Um, so it's just normal to me to uh adopt a a shelter pet
0: yeah you've Uh, taken that personal passion right that you had for animals and your entrepreneurial spirit it sounds like too right you described it that in um well in First of all, as a North Carolina native, glad and kind of cool that you started with something that came out of North Carolina and helped us here. Um, Where are you based and kind of what is the geographic parameters of the work you do now?
1: Sure. And uh, I didn't say what Pilots to Rescue does, but we're a nonprofit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Uh, pilots to Rescue is a nonprofit public benefit aviation organization. So we use volunteer pilots. None of our pilots are compensated. And we fly animals simply from areas where uh, they overcrowded shelters or where they can't be adopted to areas where they will be adopted. It, and up here in the Northeast, where we're based in New Jersey, Uh, There's a a huge appetite for uh, rescuing shelter pets down in the South, uh, namely Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, the Carolinas. There's a lot of big overcrowded uh, population, and unfortunately, if the animals are not adopted, they get euthanized. So aviation is a great way to get those animals out, especially the ones that can't endure the stress of that kind of drive, because there's a lot of great people driving these animals. So um, yeah, we're taking them from point A to B so they can be adopted.
0: Yeah, uh, literally life saving uh, for some of these animals, as you described, and and I, I guess going back to that 2015 or leading up to the launch in 2015, did you simply see that no one else was doing kind of what you had in mind, or people were doing sporadically some of this kind of rescue work? And talk about the environment. I guess did was anybody else doing it at all?
1: There, yeah, back in 2015, there were other groups that are doing that, and they've grown. There's probably about a dozen of us in the United States. Uh, the the problem is a lot of private pilots, uh, mainly people that are not flying for the airlines, uh, they own or rent planes that are typically too small and don't really have the range for the type of rescues that we need to do. Uh, you know, if you go if you uh, go to your local airport and you start taking flight lessons, it's typically going to be a four-seat trainer that you really can't even take the seats out or put a lot of weight in, um, and they don't go very fast because they're used for training. So that really uh, created the the need to raise money and purchase a larger aircraft. It, it's rare that you'll find a six-passenger aircraft to rent, and they typically don't do training in those type of aircraft because of insurance companies. the, the insurance is very high. Um, you know, it's if you're going to put six souls in the plane, six people, they're going to charge you a lot of money to insure right. that plane. Yeah. Right.
0: Well, so. what did you do? Literally, you're like, all right, I've got an idea. I'm going to bring some of my entrepreneurial experience to building what amounts to a, a business, which you've clearly done nonprofit business. But d- did you look at models of other organizations or what kind of shaped the design uh, of the original kind of organization?
1: I, I did look at other models of these organizations and there's really two, uh, there's one that are transport boards and that's the biggest one today, uh, Pilot and Pause. Um, They have a transport board uh, and volunteers pick up the trips that they want. It's largely like a weekend warrior type thing because again, right. people are, you know, it's expensive to fly and they just want, you know, they only have room for a few animals and they're flying an hour or two, and it's still very helpful, but it's all it's a huge undertaking because you have to uh, piece together multiple pilots or drivers or whatnot. Um, and then the other model is organizations that own and operate their aircraft uh, and you have more flexibility um, that's a huge undertaking on, unto itself, uh, which we can get into later about how difficult it is to keep these planes in the sky. Um, And yeah, and I've gone back and forth with these models. I've had several versions of transport boards. Um, I I can't say that they've been very successful. Um, I mean, long term, I see us more as a hybrid where we own and operate some aircraft, but we're also leveraging uh, volunteer pilots across the country. Uh, It's the only way you're gonna really connect the dots. Having a fleet of aircraft across the country is not a a viable way to to do this.
0: Right, that makes sense. and. Well, talk about your entrepreneurial experience prior to starting Pilots to the Rescue and and how did that influence the design of the organization you're now leading?
1: Absolutely. So uh, like so many stories you probably hear about COVID, we are a a COVID success story because Pilots to Rescue was always just a a passion project of mine. I never took any compensation. I always did it out of the goodness of my heart because I love flying and animals. I had another business, uh, successful business in um, corporate events, B2B events, specifically in hospitality, interior design. So if you think about COVID, uh, hospitality and travel were one of the worst hit sectors. So during COVID, I was doing these things parallel and uh, I noticed the charity started to take off because if you think about uh, everybody wanted a furry friend at home, people were spending right. so much time at home. So they cleared out the shelters. And on top of that, doing state to state transport was very difficult. Um, because even new york for a short period of time you weren't allowed to travel across state lines and stay overnight for 24 hours i don't know how much they were enforcing that but uh people were scared to drive the animals whereas in a plane you could turn around in 24 hours and it was no big deal they had you know that whole 24-hour rule right so um the uh, b2b events company during COVID just bottomed out and i tried to keep it alive as long as i could and pilots of rescue just took off the donations skyrocketed and also the government um they uh they didn't limit the uh, uh if you itemized your uh tax return there were no limitations in terms of uh making charitable uh donations and taking a tax deduction so that that worked really that well helped. for yeah. yeah it did it did um so yeah i just jumped Ship, I just pivoted. That was a key word in COVID. (laughs) We've heard that
0: a few times, yes.
1: Yeah. So server linings pivoted, COVID success stories, but you know, as cliche as that is, we're certainly one of them. And uh as heart-wrenching as it was to let go of that very profitable event business that I have been in for over a decade, um, you know, it was probably the one of the best choices I ever made. Right
0: thing to do. And so, how long did it take you i guess going back through the timeline to like all right i'm on to something and this is not just going to be a passion or a side project how long do you think that took
1: uh i would say that it was probably about six months i mean i did i did have some partners and investors uh regarding that um event planning business and i felt obligated to see it through but uh we we have been rescheduling an event on a cruise ship for years if you can imagine we had 150 people scheduled to go out of uh fort lauderdale to um i think it was cozumel wow uh, yeah in march of 2020 and it was the last it was the last cruise ship to go in international waters but we had to cancel the event as i mean we couldn't put our right yeah so um we were trying to reschedule that event for years and we did one on a cruise ship and I I knew before even we going into that event that this was this was the end for me but I wanted to see it through I wanted to I I pride myself in being someone that finishes what they start no matter how uh you know if you don't Challenges, have any
0: hope, whatever <laughs> yeah
1: any hope for the future so I did that and I could it allowed me to walk away um you know with with uh freedom and expression and not worrying about what people would have said you know and stuff like that and feeling um like uh closure closure is the word i'm looking yeah, for it yeah, gave me great right. great closure too but uh power i would say to answer your question six months i was basically doing them, them parallel and um i realized you know this is the end on the events and it's a distraction at this point and i need right. to let it go
0: then you could focus full-time on now what you are doing and pilots to the rescue and I guess a question, of course, COVID didn't allow any of us to do really much long range planning, but strategic planning for nonprofit leaders is a common conversational topic I have with a lot of folks. I'm wondering, um, have you kind of envisioned or are you able to envision kind of a long range plan for pilots to the rescue? Or is it still kind of like, all right, you're taking it, you know, six months, 12 months, 18 months. How do you approach strategic planning for the organization?
1: So strategic planning has a lot to do with the type of equipment that we're operating, namely the aircraft, and uh, also how we're going to encourage volunteer pilots to participate and um, how we're going to grow this organization, how we're going to scale it. Um, And I, I do think we, I have a strategic five-year plan um, which includes more robust aircraft, not necessarily more planes. We own and operate three, Right. just more commercial, and they're so expensive, like this new plane that we're looking to get into, it's a new new to us, I mean, it's, of course it's used, is a $2 million budget. So the amount of money it needs just to get into it is wow. huge. Yeah. But if you look at a five-year path, this plane uh, is way more applicable and appropriate for the type of work that we're doing, and will make, such a, make a larger difference long-term. Um, it, it it makes a big difference for our organization, um, and then it's a question of how do we scale scale the organization. And I, I believe that animal welfare is not even on the top ten of charitable uh, causes. So I'm starting right. to dabble. I'm starting to dabble in some of the other offshoots, and that's a normal concept for me being an entrepreneur. You know, you you create new events. That's essentially what I'm doing with a nonprofit. I'm creating new initiatives that don't have anything to do with animal welfare. Um, so that's strategically, I think, long term is how we scale the organization.
0: Makes perfect sense. And yeah. and again, as as our, from our previous conversation, you're doing this with a relatively small team, but maybe talk about the kind of infrastructure for your organization in terms of the people involved.
1: Right. So something I struggled with during COVID is, uh, you know, I had this idea that uh, charities should not pay people anything, which is totally false. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so I had, I had to get over that. I mean, I do live in Brooklyn, I have four kids. Um, so you know, I got to put food on the table. And, uh, you know, you'll you'll hear people say like, Oh, the pe- shouldn't pay yourself anything. But I knew that not to be true. Yeah, so good. Um, but I'm, I'm the only uh, employee on the books. Um, I, I, of course, I had to kick myself off the board, expand the board. And, um, you know, pay myself and do all that stuff but I'm the only employee and then I have uh, which I, I, we're probably going to get into later I have a, a team of virtual assistants um, which has been a game changer for me because if you think about the the, the cost of having an employee in Brooklyn it's it's astronomical yes. and the benefits and everything um, and then I have a social media marketing manager uh, who I pay like an employee but I she's still uh, outside of you know, outside contractor, business, Contractor, that's yeah.
0: right. Yep. It looks looks good on the
1: 990, you know, it looks good on the, the return. Yeah, so. absolutely.
0: I mean, you've been efficient and lean and mean in, in that operation, but let's talk about that. You know, how have you approached kind of this outsourcing model, I guess, for lack of a better term, and the use of effective contractors to allow you to do everything you want to do?
1: Yeah, I use a service called Time Etc. And there's a lot of virtual services out there. The reason why, I, and I've used a bunch of them, but uh, I like Time Etc. And I think they're based out of the UK um, because uh, the hours um, roll over. So it's not a user loses scenario. And they also have different virtual assistants based on what you need. Um, so I, I do like that service uh, and that's that's what, what I do. So um, I have an admin virtual assistant, I have a transport coordinator virtual assistant, I have a press uh, virtual assistant, and then these new initiatives that I'm starting, I I actually assigned a virtual assistant, and it allows you to create uh, people that are specializing or focusing in a particular discipline, rather than loading up someone with, you know, different Different things, um, which can get confusing if they have to if they have a lot of pots on the stove. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, um, so I do that, and uh, I also use outside contractors and consultants. Um, whether it's uh, you know our direct mail program, or we have a sweep sweepstakes program, um, we've used grant writers and consultants, um, hired guns, if you will. And yeah. although although these people may seem uh, extremely expensive, if you think about the value proposition, it's well worth the the spend. And you have their attention for the time and the retainer. Um, And they have the experience. That's really what you're buying. It's not so much their their time. You're buying their experience. They've been there. They've done that. And we all know that making mistakes and struggling and trying to do things on your own uh, will cost you more in the long run. So.
0: Well put. And, And yeah, and again, the cost to retain them as employees would be significantly higher, right in terms of you're getting expertise in a contract basis that is the equivalent of full-time uh, expertise, but frankly less expensive. And it strikes me too, Michael, that the advantage you have of that kind of outsourced model is you're not limited to the geography there in Brooklyn, right or if I'm a nonprofit leader listening in a rural community, again what you're doing, I'm assuming all of this is is virtually, managed. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah. And a huge advantage of using uh, outsourcing this type of work is you get to take advantage of a very reasonable uh, price workforce and people that people in those rural communities don't have access to these type of exciting opportunities. Like uh, I have a woman in outside of Birmingham, Alabama, and she says the type of work that she's doing is the talk of the town. Like she, wow. everybody's, everybody's jealous of her. It's a coal, <laughs> it's a coal mining town.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, but she, she can bring her talent and I'm assuming a similar passion for animals to the work you're doing, right? That's right. Exactly. What, Michael, from a management perspective, do you bring all of your kind of outsourced resources together in some team dynamic or is it largely kind of you're working with each one of them in their area of specialty? Well, what, what's the management? kind of realities of of what you do
1: i think it's both uh when it's when it's appropriate we bring together people on a team and uh then i'm working uh with them individually but uh, i give a lot of i give a lot of independence uh you know i i make people accountable for the work they keep track of it um and but otherwise uh i don't i'm not a helicopter boss (laughs) Um, certainly not a helicopter parent either. Right, so, All right.
0: With four yeah. kids and uh, but appropriate analogy with aviation, I guess right in this uh, right. discussion. But um, well, and again, let's go back to the the entrepreneurial spirit that you have brought. It seems to me that could be a takeaway for our listeners that, or maybe what are some of the entrepreneurial skills that you've brought to this work that you had to utilize in your previous work?
1: I think uh, too often people that run charities especially in animal welfare they lose sight of all the facets of of a charity which is pretty much a business you're just a little bit under the microscope of the public you know yeah. everything's public right but otherwise it's a business like anything so instead of Uh, A a lot of I've seen it happen before and and it's heart wrenching, but uh, some of these uh, animal rescue people really wear their heart on their sleeve and they have holes in their pocket. Literally, they'll spend like fifty thousand dollars to save one animal when we all know that's probably the animal, unfortunately, that you should euthanize and put that fifty thousand dollars to work on more viable animals. And a lot of the time the transport we're doing. Are the most viable cases. Um, so, but they also lose sight uh, of marketing. They lose sight of fundraising. They're too busy focusing on saving as many animals that they can at all costs. And I don't think that's the right uh, approach. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, and I've noticed, you know, when COVID came and it, it hurt my events business, I did whatever I could to keep the ship afloat uh even though you know it was all down to a one person business me and i was running yeah. virtual basically running virtual meetings so um but in, in the charitable work it's and as far as entrepreneurial you have to think of you i think my it was my grandfather who always told me and i i don't think he coined the phrase but you have to sell the sizzle not the steak right you know right. so it's it's really important to market your your business and or charity for that matter and get people people's attention. You have to bring as much attention to the cause that you can, even that, even if that means uh, doing things like hiring a social media manager, you know, um, and putting a lot of investment into it. I was not sure of that, to be honest, that that would pay off. But it really did. I mean, I, I think we can attribute some of our huge press to that, like the Today Show or CBS or this recent Sleep Number commercial that we did to our social media. So um, I think the risk-taking ability that I have with being an entrepreneur as well, uh, people in the charitable world maybe are a little bit more conservative and they're right. not willing to take risks. I mean, I've had plenty of failures. We've all heard that before, how important it <laughs> is to fail.
0: To learn from it maybe, right?
1: That's right, yeah. So I'm not afraid to start these new initiatives and uh, put hard work in and see where it, where it goes. And some things you just have to you know, cut your losses.
0: Yeah, well put. Uh, so. and- well, and I'm, I'm glad you point out that I mean nonprofit is a tax code, but it it's still uh, the businesses you and all of our nonprofit leaders listening they still have to make a profit, right? You're not going to have mission if you don't have the money to support it. And it sounds like you've even if it is tough programmatic decisions in terms of animals to save. Obviously, no animals are going to get saved by your organization if you go out of business, right? So you've got to make strategic business decisions as you have done. Um, and I guess Mike, I want to though ask you about you've had wonderful success in the social media and marketing. How do you approach that? I mean what I hear a lot of nonprofit leaders, in other words, they're just overwhelmed with you know every social media channel and I could spend all my time doing social media. So how have you been focused and successful in that kind of social media area?
1: Certainly by outsourcing, uh, the social media content yep. um and also working with influencers um that's one benefit about being in animal welfare and aviation it's it's a novel concept it's sexy you know people yep. the idea of flying a small plane with animals uh so whereas influencers typically charge especially the larger ones we we, we don't pay anything i mean sometimes you offset some travel arrangements but they're happy to help out with the cause and that really helps get our mission out there and and shine light on on this issue of euthanizing animals because they feel um compelled and motivated and inspired to tell their audience about it so that's extremely helpful and then having the social media manager and her team do all the moderation um so what what overwhelms people is not only how many channels there are how how much uh content moderation you sh- you need to do, how often you have to post. And we tend to focus on some of the channels that have the most impact, um, You know, namely Facebook and Instagram yeah. and YouTube. Uh, channels like TikTok, you really, it's a whole different beast. You you need to post so much. It's yeah. generally a younger subset. So we have a TikTok channel, but we don't put a lot of uh, investment in it. And I, if I would give anybody advice with social media, pick one or two channels to focus on. Um, Content moderation is really important. Like you need to like people's comments and respond. I'm yeah, not saying yeah. the executive director should do that, but hire someone to do that for you.
0: Yeah, well put. And well, and I guess a takeaway for a listener too is, it, do you you've identified influencers who were in your kind of social media orbit, and then you were proactive and kind of connecting with them further. Is that something I guess any nonprofit leader could do?
1: Yes. Uh, So we've worked with a lot of uh, general aviation influencers, general aviation versus commercial, for example. And a lot of a lot of them are women. So uh, that's another thing I didn't realize when I started doing this. We actually promote female aviators, which is a huge need. I mean, there are. Yeah, most of the aviators are men um so we end up doing that uh but yeah anybody look look at the your cause and what people are passionate about go after those influencers because they they probably want to help you um animal welfare influencers are a little harder because they they are getting a lot of pay gigs yeah. uh, female female yeah. influencers are not uh, other than flying so uh but yeah that's that's who we reach out to, and they—they're great at developing content. They really are. I mean, it's amazing what you can do today with an iPhone and uh, editing apps.
0: Yeah, amazing. So. And and again, as you said, you don't have to pay, uh, but it can't hurt to ask. You know, right? I guess not every influencer may accept your offer, but many of them may be touched by your cause. Therefore, they would be willing to share your message within their audience. And I guess that's been a huge benefit to you and the work you're doing.
1: Absolutely. It really is. I mean, we hit it hard the last year with influencers and yep. uh, now we're taking a breather and a step back, but there's always that, that opportunity to bring those folks along um, who have a huge reach.
0: All right. Well, I love that. And my wheels are turning as I'm sure our listeners are about how they might maximize and and prioritize some of their social media work. Um, Let's talk about fundraising, which again, (laughs) for some nonprofit leaders, that's a, oh no, not why I got into this work. But again, you have been successful in this and let's talk about it. You know, how from the early days, maybe to now, how have you identified the, the funding partners that have become more and more supportive?
1: Sure. And this is a, it's certainly this the type of fundraising efforts that we do is controversial. And it also is a double-edged sword because okay. our, our main source of fundraising is direct mail. Yep. Um, and our target is 65 plus female. It's largely people that aren't on the internet and not donating online. Donating yeah which might come to be a shock to some people uh why it's controversial or a double edged sword is because we spend a lot of money on fundraising and there lies the problem because uh it looks disproportionate to yeah. the amount of money that we're raising now as we continue to scale and bring more money in that percentage will get smaller and smaller uh you know we work with guiding eyes for the blind they're a 30 million dollar charity we're You know, one to two million. Yeah. So their amount of mail and the amount of money they're spending, investing on direct mail, might be the same amount as ours, but because they're bringing in so much money, it looks like very small percentage. So it's a lifeline for us, and I'm constantly telling our donors about it, or people that maybe don't want to donate because of that. And you know, if we didn't do the direct mail program, we wouldn't survive. So
0: right, you have to. uh,
1: yeah. So I, I don't know. We have a successful direct mail program. It it took a while to get going. Um, I've spoken with other direct mail houses to try to save costs. And they're like, we can't even touch your program just because it's so mature at this point. Yeah. And they would have to charge us even to run it. And then in a couple of years, we would turn a profit. So it really makes no sense um, because it is. You look at those figures and you're like, wow, it's a lot of mail. We dropped over a half a million pieces last year. Wow. Um, so and it's great content, you know, it's, it's, and, uh, but that's our most successful program. Uh, we recently implemented a sweepstakes program, also controversial, but nets great results. Uh, how does that work? So, well, how does that work? Uh, I mean, if you've ever received a publisher clearinghouse in the mail, yeah. it's, yeah. it's very similar, you know, uh, so you, you, you get something that kind of looks like a check and you enter you enter a drawing, uh, donating is optional but it does benefit our cause and it's sh- it shows right on there builds uh, awareness yeah builds awareness people donate and there is a purse there is you will win people do win money and it's better odds in the lottery so you know um, people may not like the tactics but sure. it raises money you know there's other things that are you know common things done with charitable charitable organizations and soliciting money whether it's gifts or uh buying or renting names i mean these are common practices that everybody uh participates in and they do net net money otherwise you wouldn't do them um so i would say uh you know online fundraising and social media and all that it's not about the return on investment financially it's more about getting press and media attention yeah Yeah, because that's about 10 percent of our fundraising the online stuff uh, it's it's negligible.
0: Yeah, but, um, but and do you do you imagine though that it, that while now you are doing the volume efforts like direct mail to build your database, do you see ultimately that now you'll get to know some donors on a more personal level and maybe major gift philanthropy will be part of it as opposed to you know direct mail response type activity yeah. or where do you see it going?
1: Yeah, and I know that's a big uh, talk in the nonprofit world. How a lot of uh, charities are going after big donors rather than the small ones. Right. Um, so uh, and of course, those have been game changers for us. So um, we've, we a couple years ago, we received a sizable donation. And this year, we got the largest donation ever. And those were both from individuals. Wow. Um, so to But to answer your question, donor stewardship and building relationship is something that is very high priority for myself personally. Yep. Um, I, I write cards handwritten thank yous i pick up the phone and speak to donors when nice. they give me their contact information and that's also something I, a complaint i hear in the field a lot with other uh you know reading philanthropy today or whatnot is um donors feel disconnected from the organizations that they give to and it's yes. a big problem so yes. i i always tell donors when i speak to them when they when they're so pleasantly surprised that I get on the phone, I I tell them, I hope we never get that big that I can't have these types of conversations. And that's worked really well for us. Every executive director, board member, they need to do donor stewardship. It's really important, not just to have transparency, but to be accessible and engage with your donors. You just never know. This woman who gave us nearly a million dollars, she donated a hundred dollars back in like 2018. And we kept wow. in touch with her. Yeah, so. personal touch. Yeah, and you may, and they don't always make it known. So people have extreme wealth uh, and the ability to give. They they want to be anonymous. many of them want to be anonymous. You know, um, so yeah, the millionaire then, next door kind of. Yes, thing. indeed,
0: and and that's so well put. And, and I to your credit, because I think you're right. Some of the criticism of direct mail programs would be the, you know, there's not a personal touch. But it seems to me you're combining you know, the volume of getting your message out through direct mail, but you're also making sure there is a personal touch. You and do, do some of your board members get involved in that relationship kind of building as well?
1: They do. Some of our board members are, are donors themselves, uh, right. or people who right. reached out to me. Um, so, and I'm always putting my pictures and my phone number on all the letters on the direct mail. I, nice. I tell them, I, tell them I, I love to speak with donors and they call me up. Um, and others I've never spoken to, but they give in a big way. Um, and we also have a digital newsletter that we print out and we have a, a fulfillment house, a different a mail house send it out. So, because the the solicitation letters tend to ask them for money a lot. Uh, so I, I saw the need to tell, to show people how we're using their money. Yes, And that's really important. Uh, I think if you show people how you're using the money, they're less concerned with how you're raising the money. Um, Agreed.
0: Yeah. And, so. And Every touch point then is not just another kind of solicitation, right? When you're providing information and follow up, um, which yeah. I think is again a, a wonderful practice that you have uh, succeeded, um, Michael. Lots of wonderful takeaways uh, from your origin stories, <laughs> how you managed through a COVID crisis, and use your entrepreneurial skills and everything else. I I wonder again if someone's listening now, maybe in or thinking about nonprofit leadership any final advice that you might offer
1: final advice i would offer to nonprofit leaders is make sure you've kind of done every position with within your organization uh i think there was a reality show about this i can't remember where the boss was <laughs> right. something boss undercover boss or something like undercover that undercover boss <laughs> yes so important and i'm very impressed with ceos that do that i read about uh airline ceo recently did that he was a a, a flight attendant for a day. Oh, wow. um, I think it was, I think it was Lufthansa if I'm not mistaken, but it's so eye Um And being a pilot and doing a lot of rescues myself, less so now as we grow, but um, it it really enables you to see the different perspectives and how you can excel in all the facets of, of your your charity. Um, you can't be afraid to roll up your sleeves and get out there and, and do the good work um, on the, on the front lines. Uh, it can all be done inside of office. And um, you know, engage with your donors as much as you can. Uh, certainly really important. And don't be afraid to fail and try new things. Um, and uh, put sufficient time into fundraising and marketing uh, because it's still a business.
0: So. Indeed. <laughs> wow. A, a a checklist of wonderful uh, pieces of advice there, Michael. Thank you uh, for wrapping up a wonderful conversation with that. And of course, we're going to tell our listeners where they can find out more about you. But before I ask you that, uh, as you know, every guest has offered up a book recommendation. I wonder if there's something that you've read that you might recommend to our listeners.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's one I read recently uh, called Game Changers. Uh, it's by, uh, if you've ever heard of Bulletproof Coffee, uh, Dave oh, Asprey. Yeah, Yeah. Da- yeah he, he's uh, the author, Dave Asprey. And uh, the tagline is what leaders, innovators, and mavericks do to win at life. It's called Game Changers. And there's so many great books out there. Uh, But this one had, it definitely has a lot of controversial topics within it. But I've tried some of the things, even if I didn't believe in it, or think anything would happen. I tried it on and some of the things were really helpful. um, And I continue to incorporate into my daily life. Um, love other that. things, other things seem a little bit more like a commercial. He's trying to sell products, but he's, <laughs> he's pretty good about saying, I believe in this product. You can buy mine or someone else's. So he, right. he I think he knew what he was doing. He's a businessman, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But,
0: uh, hey, that's kind of my approach to every book. You know, I, there, there are going to be some takeaways you may not take everything away, but it sounds like that one for you has provided some, some wonderful things to think about and love that we can share it with our listeners as well. So Michael, fantastic. Thank you again for joining me here on the path. I wonder where do you want people to go to find out more about you and the great work you're doing?
1: And thanks for having me on, Pat, and I really appreciate it. Uh, people can go to our website. It's pilotstotherescue.org. Uh, that's pilots, is plural with an S, and everything is spelled out, T-O-T-H-E, rescue.org. And then uh, social media, our largest channels are Facebook and Instagram. So check us out.
0: Fantastic. Uh, I encourage our listeners to go to the show notes for this episode to find links to all of the things you and I discussed and thanks one more time, Michael, for joining me on the path.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Pat. And thanks to all your listeners.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Michael as much as I did. You know, His journey with Pilots to the Rescue really offers inspiring lessons for nonprofit leaders who are striving to do more with less. His passion for aviation and animal welfare combined with smart strategies really demonstrates the impact you can have even in a relatively small setting. Now for additional details and resources related to this episode, make sure you go check out the show notes. It's episode number 232. All you have to do is go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and there you will find more information about Michael's work and the organization he leads called Pilots to the Rescue. Now, if you found this episode helpful, please consider sharing it with someone else who's on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our podcast. Go to PattonMcDowell.com, go to the podcast page, and you can click on the follow button. That will allow you to subscribe, and you won't miss any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. Now, while you're on our website and you're on that podcast page, go to the episodes button there as well. You can browse through thumbnails of all of our episodes, our most popular episodes, and you can search by topic or guest name. Thanks, as always, for all that you are doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. Keep up the great work for causes that are most meaningful to you, and I will continue to give you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.